Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Hey, uh, we're going to jump into the Word uh, right away, and we had a little intro video that I just asked because we went into a little bit of overtime today uh, at the 9 o'clock service, but how many are ready to listen fast? Can you listen fast, and I'll preach fast, and we'll have a good morning. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time or you've been out for a couple of weeks, uh, let me catch you up to speed. We have been in a series over the last few weeks entitled Back to the Table. Everyone say that with me, Back to the Table. And uh, we've been talking about this centerpiece of a table in Scripture, not necessarily the uh, four-footed rectangle of wood or the marble circle, but uh, the table that, uh, that, represent, that represents relationship and connection between humanity. Um, we've discussed over the last couple of weeks that the table all throughout Scripture is this place where people have an opportunity to come and know one another and truly be known. As you study the Word of God, you will find that it's at tables where people make covenants with one another and uh, problems are resolved and strangers, they become family and uh, enemies become friends. It's a place of intimacy and safety and connection. Uh, It's this really important space where we don't just go through life alone, but we truly let our guards down, take our masks off, perhaps both literally and proverbially, and we have an opportunity to engage relationally with one another. And as we've said over the last few weeks, it seems as though that space, this intimate space of relationship has been marginalized and neglected and avoided as a result of all that we've suffered, be it uh, the, the pandemic or political unrest or go down all the lists of things that we've endured for the last 18 months. There's a lot of reasons that there's some empty seats at the table. Uh, But despite what we've faced and despite the fact that there might be some empty seats, people feeling isolated and alone, we are making this invitation, a simple invitation for everybody to come back to the table. And we do that a lot of ways around here. We've been mentioning groups for the last few weeks because we want everybody in our community to find a table to sit at. Listen, if you are not in a group yet, if you just attend on a Sunday and you sit in a seat but you don't know anyone, I wanna appeal to you as best I can, please get involved in the community around here. The growth in your spiritual walk and, and the things that you truly need relationally are found in groups. It's where a big church becomes small and strangers become family and we really want that for everybody. Um, but another way that uh, we set the table here at the Father's House is through something that's taking place directly after this service. And I think we have like seven or eight spots left. So uh, you have to be quick to the draw if you're interested in this. But um, once a month, we do something called Discover. And Discover is an opportunity for us to share the mission, the vision, the values, the heart of the church with anyone who might be joining us maybe for the last couple of weeks and you're debating, is this my home? Is this my place? I don't quite know yet. Uh, This is your opportunity to hear from my wife and I just about how this church started and the heartbeat behind all that we do. But more importantly, it's an opportunity for us to have a meal together and get to know one another. Uh, We serve lunch, and as we've shared in the previous weeks of this series, this whole church started around a table, 173 people sitting at my dining room table before we ever started gathering on, I don't have a table that big, just to be clear, but you know, multiple weeks, uh, where we got to know one another and share stories and as, as large as this church may get, we wanna make sure that we always have a space for intimate relationship with people, and so we wanna do that through Discover. Um, if you'd like to come, uh, you can go to the app, you can go to the website, and you can grab one of those last nine slots. I think once those slots are gone, we got no more food left, so uh, unless Jesus shows up and starts breaking bread and a miracle happens, then we're, you're gonna go hungry. So uh, make sure to take advantage of that if you are interested in joining us. Uh, but let me, let me catch up to speed with what we've been talking about so that I can dive into what we need to talk about today. Uh, in week one of this series, we discussed the fact that all of us have been carried to a table. Like this guy Mephibosheth in scripture, 
Uh, when we were broken and we were ashamed and we were living in isolation, the king, the father, he sent his son as the servant to come and find us in our isolation, find us in our brokenness, and to carry us back to his table so that we could be seated among the brothers and sisters of Christ. Uh, and then last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus doesn't really care for empty chairs. Every seat represents a soul. And when Jesus sits around a table where there's some empty spaces, he gets frustrated because he knows that those seats represent people that need to be sitting at his table. So he's called us, like the servant in Luke chapter 14 through that parable, to go out and to find the broken and the lame and the blind and anybody else who feels like there's no way God would make space for me at the table, to find those and to bring them back so that the house may be full. And there is a story that we're gonna share with you. I, I've mentioned that every week we wanna share a story of someone in our community. In fact, I think I see them sitting right there in the back row of the lower section here. Hi, hi, yeah. Um, I share a story of Valerie and her uh, unwillingness to be the only person sitting in the chair at the table, but her, her commitment to being the invitation so that the house could be filled with the rest of her family. So why don't you check out this video before we get into the rest of today's content. All right, Val, I gotta bust you out. Come on, stand to your feet. Do it, do it. Come on, stand up, stand up, let's honor you. Yeah. And the whole family's back there. So correct me if I'm wrong, you got baptized spontaneously at our Easter service, correct? Correct. So that was four and a half, five months ago. 
and to see what's changed in your family just as a result of the last four and a half uh, months, you saying yes to Jesus and then being obedient to continue to invite. That's incredible to see all the kids and the, the generations that are being changed as a result of one person's decision. So come on, we love you. They serve like every week at Pantry. So stuff wouldn't happen without you guys around here. So we love you. Thank you for being who you are. Oh, thank you. The one just hang out here together and we'll have a conversation for the rest of the morning. It's going to be great. <laughs> there you go. Everybody loves you. Okay. Uh, so today we are going to come to yet another table, a table that we've been called back to. And in uh, full disclosure, I don't particularly love the title of this message. You guys know how deeply I am committed to creating titles for sermons. Uh, this one's pretty boring, but it's going to work well in tandem with the conclusion of this series next weekend. Uh, but today we're going to come back to this table, the table of the Lord, which will also serve as our title for the chat. And I know that sounds like, like anti-religious to say the table of the Lord is not a cool title, but next week we get to talk about the table of demons, which is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, very provocative. So please make sure you come up for that one. It's going to be all kinds of fun, <laughs> as you can tell, based on the title. But today we're going to come back to this table. So, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, be our key text for this morning. Uh, and I'll read this out. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along in verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, many of us in the room have probably heard that passage before. Many of us have taken communion or the Eucharist or the Supper of the Lord, whatever they called it in your particular religious upbringing. Um, but today, as we come back to this table, I don't want us to simply remember a sacrament or a tradition or whatever comes up in your mind as you think about communion. Here's what I want us to remember. Jesus said, I want you to remember me. I want us to remember him today as we come back to this table. And I want us to remember and receive all that has been given to us through his broken body and his shed blood. I really believe today that this could be a powerful moment for some of us, a moment where healing comes, where restoration comes, where those broken areas are mended because of what Jesus did on a cross for us. So today we're gonna look at this, this table, the table of the Lord, and we're gonna take communion together at the conclusion of this service. In fact, all you should have received on your way in today, some communion emblems. Uh, and if you did not, um, I wanna have you lift your hand as we pray and get into the word. Some of our ushers are gonna come around and put that in your hand. So you can lift your hand now if you need those and we'll get those to you. Uh, but let me pray and we'll get into the, to the word. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word to change us. And as we come to this table, a table that is familiar to many, a table that some of us have taken perhaps even every week in the church we grew up in and something that might look routine or ritualistic, I pray that you'd breathe fresh life on this table, fresh life on the bread, fresh life on the blood, that we would see Jesus today. And as we see you, that we would be transformed and that we would receive the fullness of what you have for us. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen, amen, amen. Everyone get them? We good? Yeah, we're good. Okay. So when you think about church, I know that sometimes, you know, there's different churches and different expressions, but uh, as you think about church in history, it's been going on for a couple thousand years now, church has pretty much looked the same for the last 2,000 years. 
Our, our expressions, again, they're a little different. Like when we look at the book of Acts chapter two, when the church started, they probably didn't have moving lights and you know fog filling the room and electric guitars and the likes. It was probably a more natural light, shofar and harp kind of situation. Um, but despite the, the expression of church changing over time, the elements of church have pretty much looked the same. As you go back to scripture and you look at what the early church did, you notice that on the first day of the week, the Christians all gathered together. Check, we're doing that right now. They sing some songs. Check, just did that. They listened to somebody teach the word. Check, they did that. Uh, they brought their tithes and their offerings according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 from their income for that week. Check, a lot of us did that. Uh, they prayed for those that didn't know Christ and invited them to come into relationship with him according to 1 Corinthians 12. They prayed and prophesied for one another according to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and then after service was over and everybody went home, throughout the week, they met together in groups, in smaller settings, Acts chapter two. All of those elements that we take part in every single week are the same elements that the church has been taking part in for 2,000 years. And here's the thing about doing something for 2,000 years. It can kind of get a little old. It can get routine. It can get ritualistic. It can become an obligation I mean, think about it. I know, I know none of us in this room have done anything for 2,000 years, but there are some things that you've done for a while that used to bring life and joy and excitement, but now they're just something you do. It's just obligatory. For example, how many remember when you first got your driver's license? Anyone remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember like how exciting it was to drive a car when you first got your driver's license? Like you would look for excuses to take your parents' car out. You're like, I just wanna roll down the windows, turn on some 80s hair metal and just drive down the street. Come on, somebody. You would, you would offer to take anybody anywhere they needed to go. Your parents were like, oh, your siblings have a doctor's appointment, they need to go to practice. Like you were volunteering constantly to take people places they needed to go because you just wanted to ghost ride the whip. You just wanted to be in the car. But that doesn't happen anymore, does it? doesn't bring you that kind of excitement. No one wakes up on Monday morning and gets into their Prius to go to work and they're like, yes. No one does that anymore. Start calculating like, okay, it's $5 a gallon for gas and someone asks you to take them somewhere and you're thinking of excuses to say no. No one gets excited about it. What used to be exciting is not exciting anymore. Or, or how, about, um, how about shaving? Any of you guys remember like the first time you shaved? That little like squirrely hair that came out of the side of your lip and you're like, yeah. I have arrived at manhood, ladies and gentlemen. Bring me all the women. No. <laughs> I mean, you sit there and lather that hair up and take your time with the razor and shave it, and you're like, I, I feel like a real man. I don't know if this was the same for women with your legs, but that's how it was with like, with like a man. But now, no one gets excited about shaving. Beards are not popular because they look great. Beards are popular because people are lazy and they don't want to shave. This is how it works. And ladies, let's be real. I know how it works in the winter for you too. I see those hairs poking out of your Lululemons. Okay, come on, somebody. <sighs> Better handle that in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. What used to be exciting is now an obligation. Or, or um, how, about, uh, how about jury duty? And I remember the first time you got your jury summons in the mail and you were like, oh, this is my opportunity to fulfill my civic duty. And you start like playing out, like what if they put me on like a really cool trial, you know? What if like, what if I get like the Scranton Strangler? Like that would be awesome, you know? <laughs> Office reference for those that are unfamiliar, yes. Now you get that jury summons in the mail? <laughs> you are looking for reasons to not do it. Well, actually most of us do one of two things. You pretend like you never got it, which is a crime, sir, by the way. Or you start thinking of reasons why you can't so that you can submit back on the form and tell them why you can't 
do jury duty. Like, oh, I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm breastfeeding my child, and so I'm unavailable for jury service. And they're like, sir, that is humanly impossible. <laughs> like, oh, so it's a gender thing now. Okay, all right. True story, I got a jury summons a couple of weeks ago. And um, I just recently became a volunteer chaplain for the San Francisco Police Department. And uh, when I got my jury summons, the first thing I did was I went over onto Google, and I'm like, do chaplains have to serve as jurors? <laughs> Turns out I do. But thank the Lord, I did not have to go in last week. And perhaps by admitting that, I have just jeopardized my chaplaincy. So uh, there, there are things that we do that are now obligations that are just part of the rhythm of life, the rituals that at one time they brought joy, they brought excitement, they brought passion, but now they're just something we do. That's the thing about routine. It can ruin that which is sacred can ruin the things that, that used to be special. And that can happen in, in the area of our faith as well. If we're not careful, ritual can be the road that leads to dead religion. Or as the Bible says it, uh, the, the sacred things, if we're not careful, they can become common, just ordinary things. Uh, I, I think about reading the Bible, I think about prayer, I think about coming to church. These things that when you first get saved, you're like, man, I, I just, I cannot wait to be in the word. I cannot wait to be in prayer and be gathered among the believers. And then as time goes on, suddenly those things are not as much of a priority. They become obligations and not opportunities. The, the sacred things become common. And I think this table is one of those things that if we are not careful, can become a religious tradition that we just do without remembering the power of what's been afforded to us. But friends, this is perhaps one of the most powerful things that Jesus has asked us to remember. This is a significant moment. So today, I wanna, I wanna take a closer look at this table for our next couple of moments together. I don't want us to come back and just remember tradition. I want us to remember how powerful the table of the Lord truly is. And by the way, we're not gonna just do this this morning. We're gonna, yes, take communion together at the conclusion of the service, but in our groups all throughout this week, we're gonna be taking communion with one another, praying for one another, praying for the sick, and once again, reminding ourselves of the power of this table. Uh, but for today, let's go back to where this started. First Corinthians 11, it tells us that the table of the Lord finds its origin on the night that Jesus was betrayed. As he was being handed over to be crucified, uh, he had dinner with his disciples. And this was no ordinary dinner. This wasn't like a, just a Wednesday night, hey, come on over and hang out. Uh, this was a significant meal. It was the Passover or the Seder meal. And this was a meal that Jewish people had been partaking of for 1,400 years. Again, 1,400 years, there's a chance it could have gotten a bit ritualistic and routine over time. But the Passover was also a moment of remembrance for the Jewish people. Uh, specifically, this meal reminded them that when they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, that God sent a deliverer by the name of Moses to set them free, bring them out of slavery and into the promised land. It was, in a sense, their Independence Day, their 4th of July. Uh, no Will Smith, no aliens, but their Independence Day nonetheless. Um, however, unlike our celebration of the 4th of July or Independence Day, um, their meal was very significant. Each article of food that they ate drew some significance from the storyline of their exodus. For those of you who've ever sat down and eaten a, a Seder meal or a Passover meal, and you've heard, there's every one of those elements is a moment of remembrance where you stop and the Jewish people would remind themselves of God's deliverance. 
so if in our context you were to sit down and eat food with your family on the 4th of July, it might be like someone would stop before you ate the hot dog and they're like, let us remember as we eat this cylindrical tube of meat, the cannons that were fired for our freedom. <laughs> let us remember as we heap the, the potato salad onto our plate, the mountains on which our ancestors gave their lives for our freedom. It, it would be kind of like that. And as Jesus sits down to this table with his disciples and he looks at the spread, he begins to point out a couple of items on the table that he wants to redefine forever, specifically this bread and this cup. He starts with the bread. He says, this is my body that has been broken for you. From now on, every time you eat this, I don't want you to remember Egypt. I want you to remember me. Now, when we picture this moment, the bread, at least for me, this is where my head goes. We've all seen the painting with Jesus and his boy sitting at the table, and there's a nice French loaf just sitting there on the table among the disciples. I don't know about you, but I actually grew up in a home with one of these on my dinner table every single night. We were very carb-friendly at the Biddle House. And uh, my mom would put French bread with every meal. And I remember when we first got married, um, I would sit down to eat, and my wife did not do what my mom did. And so for a couple of weeks, I was like, man, I'm wondering where the bread is at, but there's just no bread here. And I didn't say anything, but finally after a couple of weeks, I'm like, yo, my mom, she used to put bread on the table every single night and you don't, what's the deal? It turns out you're not supposed to ask those kinds of questions when you first get married. So your wife does not like to be compared to your mom. Just throwing that out there as marriage advice for anybody that needs it. Uh, and thus I have been carb free ever since in my household, yes. But, but this is where most of our minds go when we picture the bread. However, this is not at all what the bread looked like for the Passover meal. Uh, and that might seem like an insignificant detail, but it's important we understand what kind of bread Jesus was serving to his disciples, because even the bread and its characteristics point to the way that his body was broken. Um, in Jewish tradition, the bread served at the Passover meal would have looked something like this. It's called matzah. And you'll notice that this bread looks quite a bit different than that bread. <laughs> Uh, there are some defining characteristics. First of all, it's flat. It is without yeast. It is unleavened bread. And the Jews, when they would eat the Passover meal, uh, they would make their bread without yeast to remind themselves that when God delivered them, he did so expediently. Uh, the story goes that when the uh, Egyptians finally released the, the Jewish people, uh, that night they said, you get out of town right now. We don't want you here any longer. And so after 400 years, in one moment, because of a supernatural act, God delivered his people. Their bread did not even have time to rise with the yeast. And so as they ate the unleavened bread, they would remember, when God delivers me, he does so quickly. Come on, how many grateful that we serve a God that delivers us expediently today? That's a good word. But there are a couple of other characteristics about this bread that speak to this new definition that Jesus was giving for the bread. I don't know if you can see from there, but you'll notice that there's a number of holes where this bread was pierced before it was baked. There's also uh, some stripes along the bread. All of these characteristics pointing to ways that the body of Jesus was broken so that our lives could be transformed. And today I'm gonna share four of them with you. There are four specific ways that the body of Christ was broken for us. And fair warning, I, I didn't offer this warning at the last service, but I probably should have after experiencing what it feels like. This might get a little heavy over the next couple of moments, and it might get a little bit quiet in here, but I think it's important we remember what Jesus endured for our sake. So four ways that his body was broken. Um, the prophet Isaiah shares all four of them with us in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 5, where he says, 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All four of those are ways that the body of Jesus was broken. All four of them ways that we need to remember as we take communion today. Because all four of them have significant impact on your life. So, so the first way we're going to look at is this. When Jesus was handed over to be crucified, he was crowned with thorns. Crowned with thorns. Uh, the accusers, they wove together this crown of a thorn bush and they began to mock him and call him the king of the Jews, not because they were acknowledging that was true of him, but rather to mock and sarcastically bow down to him. Uh, but as they fashioned this crown, they shoved it on the brow of his head. And as they shoved this crown on his head, it began to break his skin, pierce his forehead. And he bled from his head on our behalf. But Isaiah tells us that that bleeding was for a purpose. That brokenness was for a purpose. He took pain here so that we could have peace of mind. His brow was broken so that our minds could be mended. So that issues like depression and anxiety and fear and insecurity and thoughts of suicide and thoughts of self-harm and all the stuff that happens up here doesn't just become our existence on a broken planet, but as a result of his broken brow, we could experience supernatural peace. I know that right now, many of the words I just threw out there are at an all-time high. You've probably read the reports. Maybe some of us are experiencing it right now. Depression is, is at an all-time high. Anxiety, people are freaked out. They don't know what's happening. This has been a prolonged season. And there's a lot of mechanisms we run to in an attempt to deal with the issues of our mind. And I'm not going to stand on this stage and discount any of them. I believe in modern medicine. I believe in doctors. I believe in counseling. I believe in essential oils and diffusers and horse pills. Or, no, I don't believe in horse pills. But uh, you know, all the things that people take to address what's happening in their head, I, I'm, I'm all for it. It's, that, that's great. But listen to me very carefully. Unless those things are bringing you back to Jesus then at best, they are temporary. They will offer temporary reprieve, but they will not bring lasting change because only Jesus has the capacity to bring shalom, supernatural peace. He is the source of all peace. He gives beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. You will not find that in pill form and you will not find that in a counseling session. Only Jesus can provide lasting peace. Why? Because he paid the price for it. He was broken on his brow so that our minds could be mended. And today, if that is something that you are dealing with, we're gonna believe at the conclusion of our service as we take communion together, that your mind is gonna be set free and you're gonna experience shalom, the peace of God. But that wasn't the only way his body was broken. Uh, it goes on to tell us that after they fashioned this crown of thorns and they shoved it onto his head, that they begin to beat him. So the second area is that he was bruised. They would hit him in the face while he was blindfolded and say, prophesy to us, who hit you? Hitting him in the body, bruising all over. In fact, many uh, uh, prophets state that he was unrecognizable as a result of his beatings. You couldn't even tell who he was anymore. Bruising is a significant thought because bruising is internal brokenness. It's being broken on the inside. And sometimes you can see that on the surface, but other times you can't. Sometimes you just feel the pain of bruising inside, but you don't necessarily see it 
on the outside. And that's exactly what this word iniquity means as well. Isaiah said he was bruised for our iniquities. This word iniquity in the Hebrew is the word avah, and it means to bend or to twist or to distort. It speaks to an inner condition, an internal twist, an internal bend, an internal distortion. It's like something is happening on the inside of me and I don't know how to control it. I don't know how to fix it. And many of us have felt that twist or that bend as far back as we can remember. David says it like this in in Psalms chapter 51. He says, I was formed in iniquity from my mother's womb. In other words, from the day that I was conceived in my mother's womb, there were some things that are like innate in me and I don't know how to get rid of them. And they come in many forms. Sometimes they come in the form of generational curses. Your grandfather did that, your dad did that, and no matter how much you hate it, you still find yourself doing the things that your grandparents and your parents did. Sometimes it's addictions, sometimes it's anger, divorce, Go down the list of things that have been handed down to us, and no matter how vehemently opposed we are to those things, it seems like we're just following in the footsteps of the things that we hate. That's iniquity. Or maybe it wasn't something that was passed down. Maybe it's just something that you can't quite figure out how to get rid of, and as far back as you can remember, you've always felt it. That inner thing, that twist, that distortion, that perversion, that lust, These things that are happening on the inside. It's that thing that every time you try to get close to God, you feel guilty and you feel ashamed and you feel like you have to keep your distance. And you're sometimes even afraid to let it out because it's it's buried in there. That is iniquity. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't. Maybe others recognize it. Maybe it's a part of your expression, maybe not. Maybe it's just something you've stuffed down on the inside. And no one knows it's there, but you still feel the pain of it. But Jesus was inwardly broken. He was broken on the inside of his body so that we could be inwardly mended. He was broken for our bends and for our twists and for our distortions. He experienced pain on the inside so that we could experience peace on the inside. He was bruised for our iniquities. But the story goes on. After he was crowned and he was bruised, the third way that his body was broken was he was striped. Again, Isaiah tells us that this striping was for a purpose. It was by his stripes that we were healed. Back to the bread over here, you'll notice again that there are some stripes on this bread. As Jesus took this bread, I can't help but wonder if he just looked at his disciples and he looked at these brown stripes and said, just like this bread is striped and it's broken, I'm going to be broken for you. Now, I apologize in advance for the gruesome nature of what I'm about to share, but again, I think we need to embrace the brutality of the cross sometimes so we understand what's been afforded to us. Because this striping, this was significant. After Jesus was handed over to a to his accusers right before he was crucified, we're told that he was whipped, beaten with a whip. And in Roman culture, they would tie you to a stake. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you've probably seen this displayed, but uh, tied to a stake and then bent down on all fours on the ground. And a Roman soldier would come and they would take something called the cat of nine tails while they whipped you. 
The cat of nine tails was no ordinary whip. It was a whip fashioned with nine extensions, and on each of these extensions, there were pieces of broken glass and sharp rocks. Because when they whipped you, they didn't simply want to bruise your skin. They wanted the whip to grab onto your flesh, to pierce your flesh, so that as they pulled it away for the next lashing, it would carry away with it pieces of your body. Absolutely brutal. And Jesus was whipped 39 times with the cat of nine tails. 39 times as his flesh was taken away from his body with this whip. But, but he didn't do that simply so that we could wince and get queasy as we consider what he experienced. He did it for a purpose. He endured the brutality of Roman punishment. He endured the whipping so that by his stripes, our physical bodies could be made whole. He did it so that cancers and blood disorders and broken bones and blind eyes and deaf ears and dead bodies could be raised so that sickness would not have a hold on humanity. He was striped so that we could be healed. And when I think of the brutality that he endured, I get a little frustrated when I consider that there are actually some denominations in the body of Christ that believe that healing is not for today. That believe that healing died with the last of the apostles and our job now as New Testament Christians is just to sit back and suffer and pray for a little bit of comfort in the midst of it. No, if my Jesus endured that much pain in that moment, it wasn't so that we could sit back and endure pain. It was because he wanted to make healing available to his church today. Come on, he's the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus that walked this planet and raised the dead and opened blind eyes and opened deaf ears is the Jesus that is alive and well in this room today, and I don't care what you walked in with, but you can be healed by the supernatural power of Jesus' name. By his stripes, we're healed. But there's one more way, one more way that his body was broken, and this is perhaps the most obvious as we look at this bread. In these holes, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, pierced for our Transgressions. His hands and his feet nailed to a cross, a sword through his side, his, his body pierced so that our transgressions would be remembered no longer. Now, what are our transgressions? Transgressions is a fancy Bible word that simply means willful sin. At the root, the Hebrew word means rebellion. Transgressions are those sins that you commit that you know in the moment you shouldn't, but you do it anyway. It's when you intentionally ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit because in the moment your flesh is screaming, it wants what it wants, and you set God aside and you indulge your flesh. Those are transgressions. And the Bible tells us that when we transgress, when we rebel, that we receive a wage for our transgressions. Romans 6.23, that the wages of rebellion, the wages of our transgression is death. Literally, when we sin, we are earning the right to death. By God's righteous standard, according to his holiness, for us to willfully turn our back and do whatever we want to do, we are deserving of death. But the father didn't want to kill his children. Well, he loves us. And he knew that there would be moments where we would not be able to withstand that temptation and we would fall into it. That's why he had us pray when Jesus taught us how to pray. Hey, let me not fall into temptation today. 
because it's constantly present and you're gonna fall into it sometimes. And so instead of allowing you to receive death for your transgressions, Jesus came and his hands were pierced for all of your sinful actions and his feet were pierced for all the times you wandered away from God. So that instead of receiving death when you come back and you ask for forgiveness, you would receive the righteousness of Christ Jesus. You would receive his perfection in exchange for your brokenness. He, he, he received a crown of thorns. He was bruised. He was striped. And he was pierced. And all of it for a purpose. Again, not so that we would get queasy and wince when we consider what he did, but so that we would both remember and we would receive. Not through ritual tradition and religion. I love what both of the baptism testimonies said today. I grew up just going through the same dead religious routine. But then when I came into this place and I experienced the presence of Jesus, I realized that there was no religious act that could save me, no religious act that could transform me. It was only Jesus. So that we would both remember and receive what's been made available to us. And in just a moment, we're gonna do that. We're gonna pray for the sick. We're gonna believe for mental healing and all the stuff that's been provided to us. But before we do that, we need to remember this last element because it is by this element that all of the others are made available to us. The blood is the gateway to the broken body. Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, this is a new covenant that is written in my blood. From now on, when you drink this, I don't want you to remember the old covenant any longer. I want you to remember this new covenant. I want you to remember me. That's good. At least it's afternoon. I drank this at the first service and that felt a little weird to drink alcohol that early in the morning, but I'm just, here I am. The blood. Now there's a lot we could say about the old covenant. We don't have time to discuss all of the different aspects of the old covenant and the fact that at the Passover table, there were four different cups and each one of those four different cups that you drank from pointed to one of the provisions that's been made available to us to the cross. And perhaps we'll do a series about that in uh, the weeks leading up to Easter. I don't know, we're not that far ahead, but um, it's powerful. Today, I want us to consider one simple thought about this cup that represents the blood. As Jesus came to this table and he began to redefine this 1,400-year-old tradition, the disciples sitting among him would have understood that the old covenant stated, your actions were ultimately what made you right with God. Unless you followed all the Jewish rules and the Jewish laws, if you're curious about any of that, refer back to our last series in the book of Galatians. We talked about it at length. But unless you lived a holy life, a righteous life, then you stood no chance of getting close to God. But despite all their rules and regulations and clear instructions, it was obvious over the years that man was always gonna end up falling short. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. So Jesus, knowing that we could never live a life of perfection, comes and lives the life that none of us could live so that in exchange, we could receive the fullness of his perfection and his life. He shed his blood so that he could trade places with us. The new covenant is that we don't have to live by a standard of rules any longer. We simply live in relationship with Jesus. It's the life that's been made available to us. The Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, it words it like this, and I love this scripture. I never say that about anything in Leviticus, but I love Leviticus 17. 
It says the life of the body is in the blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It's the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Jesus was that blood given in exchange, our life for his life on the altar of the cross so that we could receive life abundantly. Simply put, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. When we take this cup, we are remembering and receiving new life. And I've always understood that to some extent. I've read the scriptures, I know what the Bible says, but I can tell you that this has taken on an entirely new meaning for me over the last couple of weeks as a result of what we just walked through with my daughter. Many of you know that my oldest daughter, 10, 10 years old, just went through uh, two major surgeries two days in a row. And uh, thank God she's, she's here today, she's recovered, she's back at home, everything is great. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, love, I love my kids um, because, and I love church. My, my, my oldest daughter, she's, she's a lot like me and she does not like being by herself. <laughs> and the, the greatest source of her healing was coming and being around people again. So the moment she was allowed to, her surgeon said, hey, on Wednesday, you can go back to school. And so Tuesday night, she was here for pursuit around people. And Wednesday, she was back at school and she's you know walking like this, like a senior citizen, but she just wants to be around humans and she's finding healing in community. If that doesn't preach to what we're talking about right now, I don't know what does, but she finds healing in community. But back to the blood, back to the blood. So while we're sitting in the hospital room, I, my wife had gone back to the house for a couple of hours to catch some sleep. And um, I was sitting in the hospital room and the surgeon who was gonna be performing the second of the two surgeries uh, came in with one of the doctors and they began to describe to me what they were gonna be doing to my daughter. And uh, in the midst of that conversation, uh, they gave me this disclaimer that there was a possibility she might have to receive blood during her surgery, a blood transfusion. And they said, it's not entirely likely, it's not, you know, normal, but in the event that there's significant blood loss, we need to tell you up front that there's a possibility someone else's blood might end up in your daughter's veins. And so they gave me this pamphlet, and the pamphlet, you know, shared some details that were a little alarming that, you know, there's a one in a million chance, of course, you know, not much of a chance, but you're saying there's a chance, you know, there's, there's a chance that there might be some toxins in the blood or some disease in the blood, but they screen it and they do their best to make sure that doesn't exist. But I had to sign this waiver that, that said it was okay for them to put someone else's blood into my daughter's body. And I'm like, you know, how frequently does this happen? He's like, you know, one in a million. I'm like, okay, but has it ever happened to you? You know, I'm asking all these questions because I'm a nervous dad. And then I made this really dumb comment that they did not think was funny. I'm like, so at the end of the surgery, you're saying that like, now she's got bad blood. And they just shook their head and looked at me like, come on, man, what's the matter with you? Grow up. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get weird in situations like that where I just start saying things. And anyone else like that? You just start like, okay, yeah, my people, okay. So I signed the form and on Thursday, my daughter goes into surgery. And uh, as it turns out, she did need a transfusion during surgery. Um, the surgery took much longer than they had originally anticipated and there were a few little complications in there. And uh, so they had to give my daughter somebody else's blood. Let me say it like this. Shy of someone else's blood, my daughter might not have made it through that surgery. The life that she needed was found in another's blood. And I thought a lot about that as I prepared for this sermon. I did my best to avoid all the cheesy preacher lines, but I couldn't help myself because that is exactly what's happened for us. On your best day, apart from Jesus, you are a lifeless body on an operating table with no hope of survival. 
But because of the spilled blood of Jesus, you have been given a transfusion in the spirit. His blood runs through your veins. His life is now on the inside of you. And you are not the dead old version of who you used to be. You have the Zoe, only God kind of life, the life to the fullest as a result of his blood. The life is in the blood. So today, as we take these elements, we are remembering all of that. We're remembering that because of his blood, I have life abundantly. And because of his blood, I have access to all that his broken body has afforded me. And as we transition here, the band's gonna come and we're gonna take communion together. I want us to attach some faith to this. I know that there might be some folks in the room who are struggling with mental illness and maybe you've been walking through a season of sadness or depression or maybe you're physically sick in your body today or whatever the situation might be. I want us to believe that as we come to this table that we're gonna see the supernatural acts of God begin to take place in our midst. That this is more than just a ritual, but this is a receiving of the fullness of what's been provided to us. So if you have those communion emblems, uh, elements, why don't you take those out and you can peel back the uh, plastic top there and go ahead and grab the bread. I know those are challenging. If you need help, find someone with nimble fingers next to you and they'll help you open them up. But it's a lot easier to do that than break a piece of bread all around the room. So, all right, as you grab that, why don't you close your eyes for a moment and let's just reflect once again on the broken body of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for the pain and the suffering that you endured on our behalf. Thank you that this is more than just a historical account, account of an execution, but this is a prophetic declaration about what's been made available to your children. You did not have to go through what you, you did. You did not need to save us, but you chose. You willingly gave your life up because of what Hebrews 12 says, it was for the joy that was set before you. And as we look around this room, as we look at the people of faith that have said yes to you over the decades, that was your joy. We were your joy. And so today, as you've commanded us to do, we remember you. We remember that we have peace of mind. We remember that we have healing for our bodies. We remember that those twists and those bends on the inside are not just areas where we have to live with it for the rest of our life, but you are the God that can untwist. You are the God that can, can mend what's happening on the inside of us. And even in our rebellion, even in our transgressions, you offer forgiveness. So today we receive this bread. We receive the broken body of Jesus for all that it's made available to us. We do this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, you can take the bread. Why don't you um, go ahead and grab the, the cup as well. Thank you, Father. And again, let's take a moment and remember. We thank you for the new covenant, Jesus. We thank you that our actions and our past are no longer held against us. That your blood was shed so that we could be made white as snow. Isaiah chapter one says, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you white as snow. Today we receive this life. 
Even right now, there might be some folks in the room that you've been far from God. And in just a moment, I wanna pray with you. But in this moment, would you just surrender your heart to Jesus? I mean, the Holy Spirit's tapping on your heart and saying, hey, it's time for you to come home. Just in your heart right there, say, I'm coming to you, Jesus. I'm coming to you. And I'm receiving this life that you've made available to me. As you said to your disciples, so we do now a couple thousand years later, we take this wine and we remember you. In Jesus' name, go ahead and drink. As we conclude in just a moment, we will uh, make a space for anyone in the room that might need prayer for healing of any kind to come forward. I'm gonna have our prayer team up here, but before we do that, I do wanna take a moment and I wanna pray for those that need to get things right with Jesus today. And I know that maybe you just said that in your heart, but if we could for one last moment, could we close our eyes and bow our heads? And if you're here this morning and you've been far from God and you know that he's calling you close, you know he's pulling out a chair at the table for you to take a seat and you know that you need to get things right with him before you leave here today, would you do me a favor? Would you quickly slip up your hand so that I can pray with you? Thank you, I got you. Yes, right there, right there, right there, right there, right there. Yeah, both you guys in the back over there. Right over here, come on man, lots of people. Yeah, right here, hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm gonna lead you in a very simple prayer. You can just say this right there in your heart and uh, you can repeat it quietly if you'd like or not at all, but just in your heart, repeat after me. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I receive everything that you've made available to me today. I know that I can't work to get it. I just receive it by faith. And right now in this moment, I make a decision to follow you for the rest of my days, to be your disciple, to walk in the, in the ways of your word until that moment where I breathe my last here on this planet and I'm swept into heaven and I look you face to face and you say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that has been set before you. Today you have all of me and I receive all of you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's just thank the Lord for all of those making that incredibly important decision today. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.